straightforward. Hi everyone, I'm Tim Hellock. I'd like to welcome everybody back to my reboot of the Straightforward Podcast. Season 2 comes with shorter episodes, 20 to 30 minutes. And boy, do we have an exciting theme for Season 2. It's called the Madison Quality Story. We'll do an episode with the team who worked on an upcoming book of over 30 stories by leaders that highlight the quality story in the Madison, Wisconsin area, going back to the 1980s. But first... Today's episode is entitled Part 1, A Moment in Time. It's an interview by Tom Mosgeller with former Mayor Joe Sensenbrenner. Joe shares how he met Dr. E.W. Deming, introduced quality to city government, and sparked a community movement across the Madison area. Well, Joe, thanks for taking time with us this morning to uh, have a conversation about uh, the early years of quality and its relevance for the next generation of people who are trying to make change in our community. It would be helpful to get your kind of sense of the genesis story of what were some of the key events or key people that come to mind that were particularly important in the beginning of Madison's evolution and quality. Well, I'd have to say first and foremost to be Dr. Deming. I was recently elected mayor and had some ideas about transportation and parks, streets and so forth, but didn't really have an organizing principle that was different from good government and other other places I have observed and worked. And uh, my aide, David Miller, said there's someone that you really, really ought to hear who's at the university this week. And he said, uh, yes, he's very famous in Japan and he's very famous, uh, worked very hard with corporations. Industrialists are very taken with his message. And I said, you haven't said one thing that interests me yet. I run city government and uh, we have different issues, different culture and so forth. And then he said, well, what are you doing Thursday for lunch, which was two days away? And I said, I I have nothing on my calendar. And he said, I got you. So I I heard Dr. Deming and appealed to me very much. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, "Uh, I'm very intrigued. Thank you for coming here. And I want to look into this further. I need to know where it's being done. What's the literature so I can look into the record? Who can I talk to? And he said, I can't because it isn't being done anywhere in the public sector. And I'm, I don't think it'll necessarily work because in the private sector, the motivation of going out of business, of completely losing your entire investment in company is a compelling motivator. And government will always be here. I'm not sure it'll work. But I was absolutely taken with the underlying ideas, the respect for people, the discipline, the logic of uh, keeping track of what you do in a very careful way. And we proceeded to recruit people, um, Joyner Associates, Brian Joyner and Laura Joyner, and, and uh, the organization was in town and highly regarded and well-practiced. Uh, Bill Hunter at the university and uh, Brian Joyner at Joyner Associates and others, over time, helped us develop materials. And we just attracted good people. I, I'd say that's the core story, is the people who are interested in doing their job better what were attracted to come and ask questions and so forth. It grew naturally in, in my estimation because of its uh, natural qualities of, of the practices themselves. Something intrigued you enough to want to go up and uh, engage him and, and want to learn more. What, what was intriguing about it? 
one of the things that attracted me was the power of the ideas was such that someone who was not a native of a country, of Japan, could bring a message, and the message itself, in addition to the personality of the messenger, but the message itself would be so compelling that corporations and other agencies would take it up and help it work. And he had a whole variety of stories about it being implemented across manufacturing platforms primarily, but very successfully in ways that market share was accruing to the companies that practiced this. So something that was not native could be that powerful in a very disciplined and successful country was intriguing to me. But I think it was probably, it was the underlying ideas just was attractive to listen to the frontline workers, the people who actually have to do the job, and how they define what it means to do a good job. It isn't in a book. You deal with the people that you work with, your customers, the people who should benefit from the things you're doing. Ask them what's important about it. And then the general concept of the capacity of a system, not just doing better and people liking it, but you determine how capable it is, all the steps that you do, to get the outcome that you want. And to work on the actual processes and methods of the system, rather than sort of encouraging people emotionally. There's a way to do things and a better way to do things. And how you determine that and continuously improve that, it just had a natural appeal to me as a better way of getting things done in a non-ideological environment. This is just the work we're doing, whether it's the libraries, whether it's trash pickup, whether it's policing a district. All of those are tasks which have elements which you can more carefully examine, keep track of, and do better. This was a moment in time when Joe went to hear Dr. W. Edwards Deming at the University of Wisconsin in the spring of 1983. Dr. Deming was already 83 and still largely unknown in the United States. By then, the Japanese already revered Dr. Deming, who they credited for their inspiring post-war economic recovery. After being featured on an NBC TV documentary, If Japan Can, Why Can't We?, demands for his consultation here in the United States skyrocketed. His book, Out of the Crisis, was published the same year he and Joe met. Deming shared his thoughts that day on statistical process control, plan to check act, his 14 key points, the seven deadly sins, and his philosophy on profound knowledge. A light was switched on and the journey began in the city of Madison. It was a moment in time. Almost immediately, um, I began with, with others, David Miller particularly in my office, to look into uh, how, how to go about this, what are the basic parameters, uh, what are the steps to get this going. I put money in the city budget for getting materials and, and doing some of the very basic things that uh, took money to go to conferences and so forth. That attracted the attention of members of the city council and uh, others in the city government when they saw that line in the budget which I think was the first public monies that were dedicated to these principles in an official way. Uh, it was passed by the city council, but when it was passed by the board of estimates leading to the city council, one of the longest serving members of that body, Warren Onkin, said, uh, uh, I'll vote for this because you're a first term mayor and you deserve to take some initiatives. But 
when you come back next year, here's the things I want to know. I want to know what the projects were, what the outcomes were, how it has saved the, the city money. I'm going to keep a very close eye on this. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm not coming back next year. If the employees of this city and the taxpayers don't feel this is worthy, I won't come back. But if, if it is worthy, they'll come back and they'll speak on behalf of this budget item, which did happen a year later. So in those early years, um, you've got the, you know, you've got a, 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 some funding, you've got a hunch about an idea that you want to test. What were some of the first things that happened in the city, Joe, to begin getting the flywheel turned? I was looking for volunteers. I wasn't looking to direct that certain agencies do certain things. And I was aware that we had considerable problems maintaining the city fleet, cars and trucks and pieces of heavy equipment that the city needed in the city parks and on the streets and the firefighters and the police officers and so forth. I knew we had trouble. And it occurred to me that that might be an area because it was more akin to manufacturing, more akin to the repetitive processes where it had been proved successful. If we could start there, that would, the analogy would be closer. And it turned out that we had a union leader, a guy named Terry Holmes, Local 311, the city garage, who said, you know, I am of the opinion that things here probably couldn't possibly get worse. And so I'm willing to try this. Uh, we're, we're, we're at each other's throats. I'm frustrated. The work isn't good. I'm not happy or satisfied. Management isn't happy and satisfied. Police cars are breaking down. We've just got to do better. And I'm, I'm willing to try this and go out on a limb. And until or unless you cross me, I'm, I'm in on this, Joe. I'm going to try to make this work. And I don't know why he did that. I, it was just intuitive on his part. But he was highly regarded by the union members. And Joe Turner, uh, his deputy, his lieutenant guy, similarly said, I'm going to go along. And one thing led to another. They studied parts was one of the first things that they looked at. And they discovered that they have an enormous number of parts that they have to keep track of. And there were delays in getting the parts. Well, why was that the case? It appeared that an important part of that was the city's uh, interpretation of low bid. You had to go out and bid this. You had to go out and bid everything. And that took time. Well, who said that? Well, the city attorney said that. Well, I wonder. I I'm an attorney. I, I know that there is some elbow room in most laws. And sensibly interpreted, it seemed to me you didn't have to bid everything every time. So I did go to the city attorney. That, in fact, was his considered opinion, that we could bid uh, in larger chunks. So we gradually took a many-step many process uh, involving delays and frustration into uh, blanket contract bids. So the manufacturer was able to reduce his inventory, or the supplier was able to reduce his inventory. He saved money. We saved time in... in uh, getting what we needed because it had already been approved in, in a blanket fashion. The parts were ones that the supplier had confidence in, we had confidence in. So a whole, whole ripple effect happened uh, with our supplier, with the workers, with the work being done, and then ultimately the customers uh, were getting the equipment back much more quickly.
What I remember, Joe, was that the uh, turnaround time on those vehicles was about nine and a half days um, to get any vehicle repaired, and we were able to bring it down to about 48 hours in, in that uh, transformation. And the parts buying process went from around 27 steps um, down to seven steps. That showed me, and I think it showed almost anybody that, that paid attention, uh, what the possibilities were. That was, for, that was a breakthrough area with a tough union, a real work, widespread consequences of bad work, and consequently widespread consequences of good work. Yeah. Joe, there had to be resistors, uh, people who were skeptical of what you were doing, even when you were working with this, these initial projects. Uh, how, how do we deal with kind of the resistance or the skeptics? It was mostly uh, passive resistance because I didn't think anyone ever successfully made a logical case against taking these steps. If you map out the steps that are currently being used and examine them carefully, very often people of goodwill that know the full process will find ways. They just had never been asked. They'd never been brought together. They'd never kept track of the actual steps or listen to the internal people who are the next step in the process who might have been satisfied with a change you, you hadn't implemented because you thought they wouldn't like it. And in fact, you never asked. The progress uh, in, in libraries, in, in daycare, in, in the police department, then began to just grow by itself. Uh, I would convene or my aides would convene or there would formally be a request People would come in and say, I, I, I'd like some training. Uh, so we needed to develop the capacity within the organization to bring the basic tools to city employees. So we, we work with joiner associates. We work with other associates of, of Deming across the country, Tim Fuller in California uh, among them. So we had world-class people who had been highly successful in major corporations uh, spending their time uh, working with us. And then others in the administration began to become uh, expert. Peter Schultes, who subsequently became a world-renowned author and an award-winning book, uh, was a city employee who first heard of these principles at, at one of the meetings that we organized. There were people in uh, summer people that worked uh, with Joiner that then began to train people in our office. Uh, Elizabeth Fidel uh, was had, had a short-term job and then worked with the police department. It was about this time that uh, we developed a position description and hired the first uh, quality improvement, quality and productivity improvement employee, Tom Moskeller, in city government. And then that really ramped up our ability to listen, uh, to develop tailored materials for departments, uh, to keep a disciplined record of the stories and so forth. So who were some of those early champions, Joe, that stepped up? I hear Terry Holmes and Joe um, Turner. Turner, but who were some <clears throat> department heads or, or others in the middle management level who really stepped up, who we should be recognizing for their pioneering work? We could go down department by department, agency by agency, uh, and, and, and find champions who are mid-level people. Very often, the department head sort of was seeing which way the wind was blowing and knew that the mayor was interested in this, and so might have said some polite things. But there were frontline people in the library, frontline people in daycare, 
frontline people in the police department who were studying this on their own, who were developing the methods, uh, the literature, techniques, recording the stories. There were probably 20 people across city government of different ages and different backgrounds, different formal training that would regularly come and uh, ask questions, would, would offer uh, advice and so forth. And as we began to formalize this uh, in city government, we developed uh, titles for different levels of, of background. And we also developed what we called the project process, which was an adaptation of what was done in corporations. But because city government was fairly siloed and probably still is more today than it needs to be, we thought that there was virtue in requiring that if you did a project and you had a facilitator, which you had to have to run the meetings and to be <clears throat> essentially disinterested in the outcome, that person had to be from outside that department. So you'd have someone in the library helping out in the police department. You'd have somebody in daycare helping out in the streets department. And so they couldn't be influenced by the department head of that department where the work was being done and the changes were being proposed. Essentially, the facilitator didn't care. Uh, that person would go back to their own department. So that on a lend-lease loan basis, people were cross-pollinating in city government disinterestedly to help use data, to help use uh, the customer identification that was being done by the people actually doing the work. Uh, so that they're, they're developed through the facilitator's training and network. Wow, thanks a lot, Joe Sensenbrenner, for sharing that story. We really appreciate you giving us that time. And thanks to Tom Moskeller for doing the interviewing. Well, we're looking forward to sharing more of these stories on the Straightforward Podcast, stories from our book, a book that doesn't have a title yet, but should have one soon, and we'll let you know what that is. But the stories are from all sectors, from education, from government, from private sector, healthcare, and more. So we look forward to having you join us in the future. And remember, I'm Tim Hillock, and this is the Straightforward Podcast. Podcast.